Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of America this time. And I'm pretty excited. Today's guest is somebody that I had dinner with last week, and she began to share about something I was not anticipating at all, which is she was a missionary in Indonesia and started talking about doing the kind of stuff that excites us at Back to Jerusalem, like going into prisons and talking with people that have been rejected by society and all of that good stuff that many of you that are long-term listeners for Back to Jerusalem are probably familiar with. So for today's guest, Nikki, right? <laughs> I almost said Vicky. Nikki. Close. Nikki. No, just kidding. It's Nikki. <laughs> Nikki, yeah. thank you so much for being on the Back to Jerusalem podcast. We're excited that you're here. And I would love to just talk with you about your story. But before we get started, could you just give a brief introduction to our audience? Sure. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I had no idea what I was even getting into, but I, as I, before I came here and you're explaining our audience, I'm so excited to just be a part of this community. Um, I am from a very small town in Montana called Belgrade, actually where we're sitting right now um, is where I was born and raised. Um, I really just grew up in a pretty farm community, simple life. Um, didn't really think I was going anywhere in life, to be honest. My biggest ambition was growing raspberries in my backyard. <laughs> and um, Well, first off, Belgrade's not that small. It must have been smaller when you were younger because this is smaller. still a pretty big town. I mean, I grew up in a town that had one street light and it okay. blinked. Okay. So, that, I mean, it was not a big town at all. We had like 200 people, if you count the pregnant women, twice. Oh, yeah. So we, it, when you say this is a small town, this doesn't feel like a small town. Like I had to drive 40 minutes to the nearest McDonald's. Okay. So at least you have a McDonald's in Belgrade. You have an airport. You have the international airport here in Belgrade. Now we do. Now we do. I, where I used to live, which is probably about a 10 minute drive from here, I could ride my horse for miles down the fields and now all of it is subdivisions. So <laughs> it felt pretty small yeah. and it felt like a very sheltered world when I was growing up here. Um, and but you didn't live a sheltered life. I didn't. Right? Yeah. No. So you had a bit, a few challenges. I did. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a pretty abusive childhood. Um, there was a lot of dysfunction, and I grew up in the church with that dysfunction and abuse. So it was really challenging, not only for my um, self, but also for my faith. Uh, and I didn't really Were have. Were you a in a Christian home? Did Did your parents go to church? Yeah, they did. They went to church and yeah. they were still in an abusive environment. Yeah, so that, that challenged a lot of things in my view about God and um, my purpose in my life as well. So, um, yeah, and I grew up just believing that there wasn't much going on for my life. Um, like I said, growing raspberries in my backyard was my biggest ambition. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started discovering that God had a purpose for me. Mm. Um, and it was really through my mom and dad, and my mom's sitting here with us tonight uh, by my side, as usual. And um, it was through just my mom and dad who became my, um, they actually adopted me. So um, 
to make a very long story short. So the woman you're sitting beside, that's not your birth mother, that's that's your adoptive mother. Yeah, my yeah. adoptive mother. And the mother I think that God really intended for me in the beginning. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So for those of you that are listening, we are sitting at a table. So if you hear crunching and drinking and gulping and slurping, <laughs> that's us uh, enjoying ourselves, having a conversation, just talking about the same thing that we were talking about last week, for the most part. I kind of wanted to record you then, uh, if I could have. <laughs> Uh, because the story was pretty interesting and I thought that, you know, it really needed to be shared. So I was happy that you had time. Yeah. So you were in an abusive environment mm -hmm. and uh, then some more tragedy kind of hit you. Yeah. So um, when I was 15 years old, my birth mom actually passed away from cancer. Um, it was pretty unexpected, a really short diagnosis. And I was left with my abusive father um, and I really didn't have any safety or security net to go to at that point. Um, and I had one grandmother who did her best to take care of me and um, she actually was the one who ended up driving me to coffee every week with who's now my mom, um, who wasn't my mom at the time. She drove me every week to coffee. Paternal or maternal grandmother? Uh, maternal. Maternal, yes. okay, so she had sympathy for your situation. There. Yeah. And yeah. was she aware of the abuse that had been taking place? Um, I think that she was to an extent, but um, again, there were so many cycles of abuse and there was um, a lot of shame surrounding abuse and domestic violence in our community at the time. And I don't believe that she knew that there were resources available for her to help me. Um, but my mom, Chris, uh, came out of the woodworks and just offered herself to have coffee with me um, and just be a support system while I was going through the death of my birth mother. And that turned into a really special bond uh, that over the years has turned into her being my mother. And I've been legally adopted by my mom and dad and I've taken their name. Um, and it's been a lot of years of healing and it's still healing. Um, there's still a lot of trauma that I'm working through even now. Um, but I can really see that it was God's plan that my grandma drove me to coffee every single week to meet with my now mom. So yeah. let me ask you, during the time that you were living at home, you were living in an abusive situation, uh, when your mother passed away, were you dedicated to the church? Was your life right with God? Were you walking with God? Were you praying that this would stop? Or had you started to go down a different road? So there was a part of me that believed that there may be some God out there. Um, I didn't believe it was a God for me. I had never seen God's goodness in my life. I had only, in my perspective at the time, I had only seen abuse and chaos and dysfunction and hypocrisy. And I really didn't want anything to do with that. Um, and so even the fact that my grandma was bringing me to a pastor's wife put me off a little bit in the beginning. Um, and I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I lied a lot in the beginning. I put on a face. I put on a mask. I, Why? I wanted nothing to do with the church. I wanted nothing to do with God. So what were you lying about? About who I was. You know, at, when you are in such a state of grief and depression, I think even when you're unwilling to admit it, the attention is comforting. And I think the more I lied, the more I believed that I was getting attention, even if it was negative attention. But my mom saw right through me and called me out on every part of it. Like, like what? Um, for instance, 
Tell us how you were a big fat liar. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, for instance, I thought that I had convinced her that I had created a new breed of animal. <laughs> no. I had told her, I had told her that I had breeded chickens and rabbits together to create an animal called a chunny, which is now my nickname in the family. <laughs> It sounds Chinese. I mean, in China, this doesn't sound like that far-fetched of an idea. Right? And I was <laughs> this convinced is how got COVID. that I made her believe that I had created this new breed of animal. It was things like that that I just absolutely lied about. I knew I was lying. But I think, like, I think that there are, this is common. I mean, but it's usually for younger kids, right? So yeah. you said you were 15. Yeah. I can remember telling stupid lies like that when I was like five, six, right. seven. Right. You know, for like you said, yeah. you want the attention, you want to be uh, yeah. famous for something. And so you make up stuff like, you know, I just I just fought 10 guys and right. beat them all. Yeah. You know, my, my dad is an astronaut. Yeah. You know, all of these stupid lies, but you still felt that when you were 15. Yeah, I, um, you know, now I have worked in a lot of different areas of um, sexual abuse to physical abuse to domestic violence, and I'm much more able to understand the things that were actually happening in my mind and my spirit at that time. Um, when it was happening, I just thought I was so clever and the funniest thing ever. Um, <laughs> But now I understand that it was my deep-rooted trauma that was putting a mask on. And any way that I could build a barrier between me and someone else was my protective mode. And that was something that I was trying to do with her, was building this wall of protection so that no one could get in to my heart. The, the hurt, did that translate into anything other than lying? Like, did you find yourself taking out your anger on other people, on objects? Did you find yourself hurting bunnies in the bathroom? Did you, <laughs> did, did, did you find yourself like subjecting, you know, to uh, abusive relationships even as a 15 year old in school or with boys or? Um, you know, I, I turned to drinking and partying. That was my, my mask and the thing that really comforted me. I discovered alcohol at a very young age and um, I discovered that it numbed the emotions that I was actually feeling on a day-to-day -day basis and it made me feel fun and crazy and I convinced myself that I was my true self when I was drinking alcohol and um, I remember there were many 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 nights that I called my now mom and dad um, in the middle of the night saying I'm passed out somewhere or you're, you know, I'm about to pass out or wow. you need to come pick me up at the train or, you know, wow. whatnot. Um, and they were there every time, even wow. in the middle of the night when my dad had to preach the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously there was a transition at some point where you got rid of the mask, you dug deep down and found the real you and you started having a conversation with God about who you are and how you wanted to change, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how candid can I be on this podcast? <laughs> Completely. <laughs> okay. we, we actually have podcasts very frequently where we do parental uh, advisories because okay. we got people that are not believers that use very strong language about very real situations. So yeah. we, we throw it out there. So um, my options really at the point where I was about to graduate high school and I had been in several car accidents because of drinking and driving with friends. Um, I had been cited with a ticket. Um, it was my first time ever in court. And I remember the judge very clearly speaking to me and saying, 
Nikki, I know that you are better than this. I do not ever want to see you in my courtroom again. And funny enough, he was the same judge that ended up doing our adoption years later. <laughs> um, but it was just moments like that that I felt like God was really trying to get my attention. And I remember having these two options in my hands, like, okay, there's this option to go to YWAM and um, Youth with a Mission and study um, basically foreign missions and church planting and the Father Heart of God and go overseas to do community development or you can go be a stripper in Florida. And, and really I was- And that was a real option. That was a real option for me and something that I was really considering. Um, and I just remember so clearly God speaking to me in the middle of a coffee shop in Bozeman, Montana and saying, Nikki, I'm calling you to YWAM. And it wasn't only YWAM, it was YWAM Kauai. It was super specific, um, the place that God was calling me. And I had no money. I think there's a lot of people that would love to be called to YWAM right? Kauai. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting. God the was interesting, very specific. <laughs> the interesting part was this DTS specifically focused on sex trafficking. Mm. And it was something that was, you know, at the time seemed like it was kind of the trendy word, like let's all stop sex trafficking. Um, there was tons of documentaries coming out about it and things like that. And I, um, for so, you know, I, I definitely caught on with the trend. I was definitely in all of those groups trying to stop trafficking and whatnot. Um, but there was something that I think that God knew, well, of course, God knew exactly what he was doing. Um, I had endured a lot of sexual abuse as a child, and um, really no one had known about it at that point in my life. And really only up until a couple years ago did people really know the full extent of what was going on. Um, and so it's just like God to call you into a place of just complete humility and surrender to him in order for him to heal you. Um, and so anyways, this CTS was specifically focused on sex trafficking. And for some reason, the Lord just knew the people that he was going to bring into my life and the places he was going to call me um, to really bring just awareness that I'm not the only one in the world who has gone through such things. And I've never been sex trafficked and I don't want to you know, like invalidate anyone's experience who has yeah. been sex trafficked. Um, what was your, what was your coming to Jesus moment? What was the, 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 the light or the, the bottom, if you will, that you kind of hit before you realized that I don't want to be a stripper in Florida. So, uh, I had been in a really near death experience. Um, my friends and I were drinking and driving and we spun out in the middle of the interstate on icy roads and we were only feet from falling over an, an overpass um, and probably falling to our deaths and a it had just snowed that night and a pile of snow had stopped our car from falling over wow. the overpass and um, I remember the Lord speaking to me and saying Nikki when is it ever going to be enough and how old were you? Uh, 17, 17. And the police brought me home and my now parents, my adopted parents were standing in the doorway waiting for me as the police brought me home. And I remember my dad sitting me down and saying, Nikki, you are going to die. And it was as if the Lord was speaking through him because okay, I so knew. He was, 
he was being a prophet. It wasn't a threat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. He wasn't yes. threatening you, was, saying, yeah. like, I'm going to kill you yes. for what you've done. He was saying, if you do not yeah. do something different, you are going to kill yourself one of these days in yeah. some way or another. And I knew that the, I had to go to YWAM. I knew that that was the only option because, and I mean, ironically, I think that I really would have ended up being sex trafficked had I chosen to go to Florida and be a stripper. That's, I mean, I, I don't know what the, the, the process of applying to YWAM looks like, um, but I'm assuming that they often ask for your testimony, uh, your background. Yeah. How honest were you? Were you talking about chickens and bunnies on that application or how honest were you? I was super raw and honest. And I mean, I had just received a minor in possession of alcohol like weeks before I applied to YWAM. And I was super honest with them and just said, look, I am clearing up my record. Like if I get my community service done, like this will be expunged from my record, but this is where I'm coming from and this is where I'm at and I'm ready to give my life to God and see what he has for me. And they accepted me. One of awesome. 11, one of eight people. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that really, I think that's a real true testimony to who they are. Yeah. Um, that either they don't have a lot of applicants or they're really <laughs> right? looking forward to like working with people that have real experiences yeah. in the way that, yeah, this was a tragedy, but God can use that stumbling block that Satan wanted to use to destroy your life to actually become a testimony to be used for his purposes. For sure. uh, it, because I mean, um, I've often talked with people about the idea of David's calling and how uh, Goliath was meant to kill him. And the very sword that Goliath uses to try to kill David, a few chapters later, we see that uh, David is on the run, needs to fight the Philistines, has no weapon in his hand at all, asks the high priest, is there any weapon in this temple at all? And they said, yeah, behind the ephod is the sword of Goliath. And David said, give it to me. There's none like it. So for you to have this sword that the enemy was going to use to try to kill you, yeah. now God is putting it into your hands to help release other people. It's, it's a really powerful testimony, which we haven't even gotten to. Right. The main part that I, I was asking right. you to come here tonight. But yeah. just that beginning, I think, really sets the stage for why you are so passionate about the other things that you're doing in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't even begin to describe the experience I had in YWAM. Um, we, you know, did a really intense discipleship school where a lot of healing came to my life. Um, and I started recognizing what our purpose as Christian, Christians are in the mission. Um, and not even necessarily about the deeds that we do, but what we're called to as Christ followers. And um, it just... Uh, lit a fire inside of me for all the things that God had, which I had never experienced before. And we went over to Asia for um, about five and a half months we were there. Um, we went all over Asia, Hong Kong, Thailand, Indonesia. Um, and it was in Indonesia that God really just knocked me to my, I mean, he just knocked my socks off. Yeah. And he told me, Nikki, like, I have more for you, but you have to pack your bags and, and move to where, Indonesia. Where, where were you at in Indonesia? In uh, Bali. Yeah, Indonesia. so God has a habit of calling you to Hawaii, I know. Bali. Okay, okay. 
<laughs> it's so funny, but it, you know what is interesting? When you move to these islands, they do not become as paradise as no, they, they are don't. when you vacation right. to them. You're landlocked. <laughs> it's not like you can jump in a car and drive to another state or, I mean, you, yeah. you really are confined to the island life. Well, and once you experience the just the devastation that is happening when you you don't necessarily see these things when you're vacationing to bali or to hawaii but when you are living and working among the people you realize that there's so much just darkness and heaviness that is happening to these people that that tourists overlook all the time because they're you know in vacation mode and on paradise island but there are real um devastating and evil things that are happening in these places yeah i mean i just spent a little bit of time with you last week and you were sharing about your time doing missions in indonesia the people that are hurting the people that are suffering and i thought dude you're going to mess with my vacation like is <laughs> i go there for such a good time and i've always had a good time and now you're screwing it up like this is this is there's a healthy balance of both i promise yeah so God called you to Indonesia. You're in Indonesia. And for those that go on to the internet and look at, you know, exotic destinations, many of them end up looking at Bali. And maybe even some of the people listening to this podcast have gone to Bali. But you saw a side of Bali that very few people see. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what started to happen once you got there, once you're following the voice of God? Yeah. So during my DTS, um, my discipleship training school, we were in Bali and we had been doing prison ministry. That was kind of one of our um, community development things. And we partnered with a, a local team that was there. We didn't go in, you know, on our own. Um, they already had a thriving ministry that was going there. And so and we, this is common for YWAM, right? To yes. partner with local ministries to, to try to preach the gospel in areas that are unreached. Yes. Yeah. And the, the heart of YWAM really is to empower the local body. Um, to go into these unreached places and places of ministry. Um, and really for speaking for myself as a foreigner in Bali, my um, purpose was just to walk alongside of them and serve them in whatever way they needed. It wasn't my job to save anyone. Um, so I just want to make that pretty clear. Um, so, so we uh, were doing prison ministry while I was in this discipleship training school. And I knew that when God had called me back, to move to Indonesia, that that's where I wanted to be was the prison ministry. Um, so I immediately, you know, arriving back in Indonesia to live long term, uh, went into the prisons there and just for security reasons, I don't want to necessarily say yeah, the names, no but um, so we just started doing ministry and meeting people and the, the prison, um, I guess regulations are pretty lax in Indonesia. So you, at that time, you could visit whoever you wanted and go in at any time. So uh, this, I actually didn't tell you this the other night, but I ended up meeting this woman from South Africa and the way that the Lord really brought her into my life was he gave me a dream of this woman. Um, I had been praying like, Lord, I, I know that you're calling me to prison ministry, but I want this to be intentional. And so the Lord had given me a dream of this tall woman with curly dark hair and I just knew that she was from South Africa. That's all I knew about her, right? So I walk into the prison, um, just moving to Bali and I'm like, okay, I want to see this woman who's this and this tall, who has brown curly hair and is from <laughs> South Africa. So they brought out like this, 
Okay, here's all of the women that we know who are talking this from South Africa. Sounds like a McDonald's order. Like, I would like a number one supersize with fries, please. I just, like, it was just. <laughs> we'll go in the back and look for it. <laughs> a crazy experience. And I'm like, I didn't, like, what is happening right now? I don't even know what is going on. Like, why are you just bringing me all of these people? And so, uh, you know, I talked with all of them and, like, we prayed together and whatnot. And this, at the end of our visit, a woman who had not even come out and the people they had invited out into the visit area walked through the gate from inside of the prison and it was the woman in my dream and i had she had actually come right over to me and said did you have a dream about me last night and i said oh my gosh i had a dream about you last night are you from south africa how how often has god spoke is that regular for you like do you hear from god in dreams um, sometimes pictures, God speaks to me in pictures a lot because that's happened to me. Like my wife is sitting here. She can tell you that I learned how to snowboard uh -huh. in a dream. Really? Yep. I learned how to speak Chinese one year of Chinese in a dream oh over, gosh. over a weekend. Wow. Uh, so God has spoken to me in and I'm not a dreamer. So I'm not somebody that ever puts, like if I have a dream of a woman with curly hair in prison, I'm thinking, did it, I eat chili past right. nine o'clock last night? Like, yeah. I, I don't put any power in dreams, but I have been impacted by dreams in very practical ways that I can measure and, and show people. Like, I took Spanish for a year in university. I can't speak a lick of Spanish. My language is horrible. Right. My wife speaks five languages. English is her third language, and she speaks better English than I do. <laughs> I, have her, I have her proofread, like, all my stuff. Um, I purposefully just write the most horrendous messages and emails just to let people know that my language is really bad before they meet with me so they know. But, you know, dreams is a way that God has spoken to me yeah. against my personality, against who I am, because I don't put a lot of weight into dreams. That takes some guts to have a dream, go into a prison, and describe a woman from your dream to a person, are you speaking English or are you speaking the Indonesian? At that time I was speaking English and it was being translated. I didn't speak Indonesian at that point. And nobody thought to check you for drugs. No. <laughs> like she's been smoking I mean, something. that's how lax it was. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty much free for all at that time. So you, you see this woman from your dream and she says, you dreamed about me. So she obviously, is she a believer? Yes, she's a believer um, and she, God spoke to her. I would later find out that God spoke to her through dreams all the time. Um, and th the point of this story, later she actually had a dream about how she was rescued from prison years before it actually happened and had shared with me about it. And I ended up getting to be a part of that. Wow. So. Yeah, see, admitting something like that to me would, would make me super nervous. Right. Like, what if God gives you a dream about the sins that I've been doing that nobody else knows about? Like, I don't want you to know about that stuff. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't totally convinced either. I was a little yeah. sketched out, to be honest. So I had no idea what was happening and why I had had such a vivid dream and what all of this meant. I mean, I, at that time I was 18 years old. I had just come from a life of super dysfunction. I was still dealing with a lot of trauma myself. I mean, I was in complete chaos. I had just moved to a foreign country away from everything I knew. The only people who I really felt safe and secure with were thousands of miles away. I just had no idea what was going on. But 
God knew every step and I just was crazy enough to follow it even if it made no sense. And are you submitted to any leadership in Indonesia or are you just out there on your own batting by yourself? So in the beginning, well the whole time I was in Indonesia I was under the umbrella um, of YWAM. There were some ministries that um, just for security reasons and things like that I ended yeah. up going on by myself. Um, and those were completely separated from YWAM just for their own security. Um, but for the most part, everything was under YWAM. And so I submitted to base leaders and submitted to the ministry leaders who were in the prison as well. So you're meeting with this woman from South Africa. Tell us a little bit about her story and what you feel comfortable with without jeopardizing anybody's safety. Yeah. So um, I would later find, like, throughout the years of me being in Indonesia, I kind of learned how to put the pieces together of many women's and men's stories um, of being trafficking survivors. And at the time when I met this curly-haired woman from South Africa, I had no idea that um, you know, she would be a part of this huge story that I would understand about what trafficking is and how it happens and who it happens to. Um, her story was that she was widowed very young um, at the time the AIDS virus and HIV was rampant throughout South Africa and there was a lot of shame. Um, there were a few resources for her at the time to be able to seek care. And so her husband uh, passed away and made her a widow very young. And she had two little children. And so, um, you know, in a state where the apartheid was still taking place and there was a lot of uh, war, civil war that was going on in South Africa, um, she was forced to try to figure out life as a young single mother and a woman of color as well. Um, and so she made, I mean, she just made a way. She was one of the most just crazy, outrageous, ambitious women that I've ever met. She put herself through school, fashion design school. She created her own business. Um, she made her own clothes and sold them in a boutique and had made a livelihood for her and her children. And she had sent her children to boarding school because those were the best schools um, to go to in South Africa and um, had really just risen above everything that tried to label her as less than or um, really discriminate her as a, a widow in South Africa, as an unmarried, especially young woman. Um, and then one night, her store was broken into and her livelihood was stolen. All of her sewing machines were stolen, her clothes, everything that she had worked for. And um, again, she was just left at rock bottom. And so there were, a, there, I think there was one man who befriended her and ended up offering her a loan for her business. And later on, we would find out that this was really the reason why she ended up in prison. Um, and I would later find out through the many people that I have done ministry with that this is a common story in especially South Africa, but all over the world, um, where women's vulnerability and men's vulnerability, people who are in low socioeconomic statuses are um, taken advantage of and their vulnerability is exploited. And so these men and women who are drug lords of these massive opera operations um, find these people who are in poverty, who need money, who don't have anywhere else to go, and they groom them um, and give them loans and they 
sometimes threaten them. Um, in Sheila's case, her life was threatened if she didn't bring, uh, dr in this case, drugs to Indonesia. Um, to pay back the loan, I'm assuming. To pay back the loan. So this is one of the traps, this, is to yeah. set loans to yeah. people that they assume, the, the loan sharks assume that can't be paid back. Right. And then that, that allows them to have power over that person yeah. to dictate what they can do to pay back the money. Is that correct? Right. And like in Sheila's case, her children's lives were in danger, you know, and as I, I'm not a mother personally, but I can imagine as a mother, you would do anything to keep your children's lives out of danger. And when you have no other resources, I mean, I can understand. I would make the same decision as Sheila. I cannot judge her for making that decision if it meant saving her children's lives. And, um, and I also can't speak, you know, I'm not wealthy, but I definitely recognize that I have privilege in my life. And I can't speak to a state of my life where I have been living on the dirt streets of South Africa with literally nothing. I don't know what kind of decisions I would make, you know, in that state. And that's where she was at. And so um, throughout the many years of ministry, I found out that there are many drug lords who have contracts with foreign customs officers, um, with foreign airlines. And these women and men who are trafficked are used pretty much as scapegoats for the drugs so that larger shipments of drugs can get in through the borders. And so Sheila... Um, and when you say scapegoats, I'm assuming you're talking about like a distraction. Yes. So watch what I'm doing with this hand over here while over here I'm doing the real... That's right, what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And Sheila was just another scapegoat. It was just another tick on the box so that they could get more drugs, more kilos into wherever they were going. Um, there was no value for Sheila's life or her children's lives. And before she arrived in Indonesia, um, they knew exactly what her passport number was. They knew what bag she was carrying, the tag numbers, exactly what she looked like. And her suitcase was in customs before she had even arrived with them knowing exactly what the contents of her suitcase were. Um, and she ended up with a 20 year sentence in an Indonesian prison. Um, where she ultimately ended up. What is an Indonesian prison like? Because, I mean, people that are from America, they have one view. People from Norway, they have a completely different view. Right. People from China, you know, so can you describe, you've been there many times, you've been in, like, or is this a nice place? Is it a comfortable place? Is it a clean place? Is it a safe place? So it really depends where you're at. Um, the prisons that I have worked in are not clean places. Um, there's a lot of people, um, way more people than the capacity is for each room. In Indonesia and many Southeast Asian, I know prisons, uh, there's very little food that is provided and really nothing else like toiletries or any of that are provided. And so if people don't have money, they go without and so it really ends up being a community within the prison of people washing each other's clothes for money or um you know it's really if you have money you have status and there really is a hierarchy inside of the prison um abuse is there yes. physical abuse at the women's prison is there sexual abuse um so at this time it was a co-ed prison actually um so yes there was lots of abuse and um you know, I worked really closely with the prison guards and wardens, and I, I really respect them as well. 
And so I don't want to give the wrong impression that I think the Indonesian prisons are useless. I think that there are a lot of people who are righteous that are working in the prisons who are really doing their best. But when you are faced with mass incarceration of people and very little resources, there's it's really difficult to take care of the people who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Understand? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just to point out the obvious, there's also a, there's a cultural difference. And so right. what you might you know think is not up to a certain standard, a, a person from Indonesian countryside might have different standards. Right. Yeah. Um, for sure. I definitely like had many of my cultural biases challenge when I moved to Indonesia. And um, it was such a humbling experience for me because I have my set American ways of how things should be and what human rights are and how humans should be treated and the exact, um, you know, just cross your T's and dot your I's way that everyone should be treated. And every one of those thought ideals and ideologies were completely challenged in Indonesia. And I learned that just because it's not done my way does not mean that human rights are not being valued, but that there are also things that it's okay to question and to really dive deep into why things are the way that they are. And is it a cultural thing or is it something that is really dysfunctional that could be changed? And that's the same with American values. You know, I think there are many values that we hold that could be changed and really influenced by the way other cultures do it as well. Mm. So you're working together with a South African woman and she ended up in prison for trafficking drugs. Yes. Now she's there. Things are looking pretty bad. You meet with her. Take us from there. Yeah. So I meet with her. We become super fast friends. Um, just I was there at four days a week for several hours at a time. Um, we just dove deep into conversation and the word and um, just things that God is speaking to her and I connected with her children back in South Africa um, and I ended up, you know, buying groceries for her and wow. getting her medications for um, the HIV virus that she was dealing with as well inside of a prison. So she had HIV? She did, yeah. How did she get it, did she say? Um, she From her husband. From her husband. Yeah. And there's also, I mean, there's concern that from her traffickers, she also contracted it from her traffickers and both could be true. Um, the story was a little bit unclear and that's just something that you have to recognize when you're also working in a prison that you don't always get the crystal clear story of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. There, there's, you know, I think this is universal. There's a lot of shame yeah. if she had been raped uh, right. or even if she had um, done other things to be able to pay back her debt besides carrying drugs. Right. That is something that you don't ready, you know, you, you don't want to start off the conversation. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, hi, my name is, you know, Jenny and I'm, I'm, I've been sex trafficked. Right. It's not the best conversation story. Yeah. And in Indonesia, it's, there's so many people that are trafficked and there are so many people who are living with HIV and AIDS. Um, in Indonesia. In Indonesia. And wow. it's a very okay. shameful thing. Yeah. Um, and so do you have any idea like what the percentages are? I don't, no. um, you know, and my version is probably very inflated because I work specifically with sex trafficked victims. Yeah. So, I mean, eight out of 10 people that I met, um, in safe houses or in brothels, they had contracted HIV or were how, progressed to AIDS already. How big of a problem is sex trafficking in Indonesia? 
Because um, when I think of self sex trafficking, right? Yeah. I, I think of um, Chinese, Russian brides uh, being used at like the Super Bowl, maybe in Europe, being trafficked through Europe and, and providing services and then moving on to other areas. Um, Indonesia, Bali, usually I think of people that are couples traveling on vacation with each other, not necessarily looking for you know, the same kind of menu that you would get like in Bangkok, for instance, or Ho Chi Minh or something like that. Right. Um, you know, it's actually very similar to Thailand and Vietnam, really? places like okay. that. Um, there are a lot of, especially, you know, Australia is a very close country yes. to um, yeah. Indonesia. It's just a three hour flight um, from some parts of Australia. And so we, there's a lot of tourists there. Um, it's also, well, as you know, from Europe, America, it's a huge destination. Um, and there's also a lot of business folks who will come to Bali as well. Right. Business is booming. Well, I mean, pre-COVID, yeah. there was a lot of business people who would come in and out. And so um, sex trafficking could look like women, you know, standing on the street outside of clubs and discreetly offering those services. There were also... Um, areas that we worked in that were very hidden and you would only know that it was a brothel by the number on the house really and only you know you only know by hearsay what numbers they are and so we would go around to the houses looking for these specific numbers and um you know we were able to have access into these brothels because we would bring gifts and sanitary items for these were women you seen as a threat by the people that ran the brothels or are these brothels run by women themselves um some are women some are men um many are run by the mafia um so i mean i spoke indonesian most of our team spoke indonesian many of us were locals as well and so we came in you know just wanting to provide sanitary things to the women and providing hygiene products um, and just chatting with them. We were not a real, it, we weren't a real threat to them. Okay. If customers came, we were Asked immediately kicked out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but over the years, we developed relationships even with the brothel owners. So and you didn't come in with like a soapbox and be like, no. in the name of God. No, no, yeah. no. Okay. We came in as friends and, you know, there are many girls who also came from the villages, um, and, and transgender individuals as well who came from the villages and would sell rice and water and treats on the, sna uh, on the side of the street just on little like wooden stands. And so we would just go and sit with them in the streets and chat That's with them. Amazing. Um, and many of them, we got to go back to their villages with them and meet their families. And Wow, so they, yeah. they saw you as someone they could trust. Yeah, I mean, they really honestly became part of our family. They, they were my good friends, and I still chat with many of them today, even living back in America. And do they confide in you some of the dark things that they've been going through? And do they ask you, you know, for advice or help or... Yeah, so many of them, like we've walked through hospitalizations because of HIV with them. We've walked through deaths in the family. We've gone to um, funerals with them of their family members. We, um, you know, I can't speak for what my, my team is doing now because yeah. I've been out of Indonesia for a few years. Um, but when I was still there, we did many raids in brothels as well, you know. So if it came to it that the girls wanted out, the men wanted out, and they're um so there's men being trafficked as well yes yeah. boys or um there like are grown boys men? boys grown men transgender individuals um women girls so children 
children as well yeah wow yeah how what age are we talking about what's the youngest um i mean some of these children are baby they're infants they are not necessarily being sex trafficked but they're being trafficked and they're being used oh in the streets goodness. to for to sell rice or to sell whatnot but all of the money goes back to their right. mother's traffickers yeah. and the babies are being used as bait so um it's a real it's a real issue and it's in your face and it's also behind the scenes as well. Yeah, because I mean, you're talking about something with a ripple effect. I mean, if you were trafficked as a baby and that's the life that you know growing up as a kid, right. you have a very distorted view of what reality looks like, Absolutely. what compassion looks like, what love looks like, Absolutely. what normalcy is. Right. So I mean, you are really bringing the light to people that are truly living in a very dark, de depressive world. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I f feel like they're, I mean, they also brought the light to me. I mean, really, honestly, these people, it's really interesting because you know that they are being trafficked and that they are going through such darkness, yet they care about serving. And I think that's the beauty of many Asian cultures and, and cultures around the world. Um, they serve you, even though they are in this, state of utter darkness and devastation you know these children would come out and we would play games with them and we would go visit them in their villages and we would become part of their family and it's really difficult to know the people who become such good friends and family to you are being trafficked and sometimes there's very little that you can do um, but I think it was such a beautiful picture of of really just God's goodness and grace because eventually many of them learn these skills you know maybe if they hadn't met some of our team local people and and even foreigners as well if they hadn't met them as children been in that state I don't know if they would have ever experienced God or heard about God's word there's many people who have never heard the name of Jesus in Bali and that's not to say I in no way think that God caused them to be trafficked yeah but I think that God is using those situations to bring the name of Jesus into their lives. Yeah, well, I mean, we live in a sinful world, right? Sin is ugly, it's right. horrible. And the only reason we have a different level of lack of horribility, if that's even a word, <laughs> our misery index, let's say, is lower than the misery index that you'll see in Indonesia, for instance. I think that's only because of the influence of the gospel on our lives, the impact on society, and the impact that that has made on a nation. Yeah. And so people that come out of the nations that have made their foundations on the word of God, they have a different life experience Absolutely. than those that, I mean, if they weren't dark, if these areas were able to be nice and jolly and friendly and, and cuddly without the gospel, then why the heck do we need the gospel? Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the gospel's needed for a reason. It wasn't just that this is a really good idea, go and win people for, you know, the spring sale this year. Right. But this is life and death. This is people that yeah. are going to die. And, and, it's, and it's not just about eternity. I really believe that salvation is more than just eternity. Like there's something that happens even in your life. You just talked about the salvation that you've had already during your living, your time living on earth, that, you know, you'll have this great time after you pass away, but you've been given a gift yeah. now. Absolutely. And I think that the people in Indonesia, 
Did they did they see that at all? Did they see something different in you? Did they ask about it? Share a little bit about like what it was like to share the gospel in Indonesia because I know that um, Indonesia is a Muslim country, right? Bali has certain special rules that make them autonomous because of their culture and they want to bring in tourists and you know bathing suits and mm -hmm. Islam doesn't work very well. So right. you know the the indigenous religion of of Bali, I guess, is allowed. Can you yes. share a little bit about that? Yeah, so Bali is one of the only remaining Hindu islands. Um, there are a few other islands, but Bali is the largest Hindu island that remains in Indonesia. Um, and much of Indonesia was actually Hindu before Islam came uh, to Indonesia. And so there's a couple islands near um, Lombok has a lot of Hindu people as well. Um, but Bali really functions in a very different way than most of the rest of Indonesia. Um, and they have their own sort of government, their own uh, caste system as well, which still really much, it functions in everyday society. So actually sharing the gospel in Bali was, I would not necessarily more simple, but I feel many people were more open to the gospel than perhaps other parts of Indonesia. Okay. Um, Hinduism is a very inclusive religion. Um, it's very much the deeds that you put out into the world are those you receive back. And I have had amazing conversations with hundreds of Balinese uh, individuals about Jesus and what part he plays in Hindu religion and the power of the name of Jesus. And I mean, I've been invited into Hindu temples with people, um, into homes. I, there's really just such an openness to the spiritual realm as well. And that was something really significant in my life serving in Indonesia was watching, um, you know, just these people, even people who are survivors of trafficking and being open to the spiritual realm. And when we would pray over them, they would really receive it because to them it was just part of the spirit world, you know, and they would receive healing and they would see, you know, things that God was doing in their life and proclaim them as a part of just their journey, you know? And I think it wasn't only me that was sharing the gospel with them. I think that me seeing God through their perspective has challenged my faith in so many ways to be more open to the moving of the Holy Spirit and more open to the things that God can do that are beyond my American perspective. Mm. And I really saw and fell in love with the Lord in a whole new way through the Indonesian people. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated. I could sit here for a very long time yeah. and talk with you. I know that your time is limited. I know that you've spent the day working. Um, and I wanted to ask you uh, about the, the South African lady. Can you tell us how that story ended? Yeah, so, um, gosh, where did I begin? So basically the, the, the point of the story that I really want to communicate and feel that I have a responsibility to share with people is really the end of Sheila's life. And that is one that I really believe will have impact on the world. Um, her story is so significant. And she, like I said in the beginning, was a believer. Um, and she, in the beginning of our time meeting, was convinced that the Lord was gonna set her free from prison before she died. And, and she had given me a picture that, uh, or had shared with me a picture of a dream and a, a vision that she had had about two people walking with her um, and the, the prison doors had opened 
and she was allowed to go free and and it was the Lord setting her free from that and you know I, I, at the time I was a little skeptical and I'm like okay you know like if that's the hope that you have to hold on to in this really desperate time I will support you in that you know um, and then I years had gone on and we continued our friendship and one night in the middle of the night Sheila had basically been kidnapped from her prison cell and was moved to a prison without any knowledge of where she had gone. Um, I looked for so months. So you see kidnapped, not like kidnapped I mean, from, not broken out of prison, but somebody with the authorities yes. had just moved her to another yes. prison. Yeah, to another prison without any warning. Like she didn't even get to bring her things with her. Um, and I had searched for months and weeks to try to figure out where Sheila was. I eventually found her in another prison in Indonesia. And at that point, I wasn't even allowed to see her. And I wonder, like the authorities would not let me see her. Um, I came in with a church group. I came in individually and I was just banned from seeing her. And I had no idea what had happened, why this was, you know, why she was being banned from having visitors. And so for a couple of years, I had lost contact with her completely because I just was um, prohibited from entering. And so I, you know, I mean, I prayed for Sheila every day. I kept searching for her. Eventually, the Lord led me out of Indonesia, and I went on another journey. Um, and I was living in Hawaii doing an internship with a domestic violence shelter. And I had another dream in the middle of the night. And the Lord showed me. Sheila and she was in a desperate state and I knew that I had to get to Indonesia like I just woke up knowing I need to go to Indonesia like right now and so I had contacted one of my friends that I had worked with in the prison and she said Nikki I have no idea how you know this but Sheila needs your help like you have to get here and so I flew got on a plane and flew to Indonesia the next day and I entered the prison and found Sheila in a state that no human being, I don't care what your culture is, no human being should ever have to endure that type of state that she was in. And I don't know that she recognized me, but I remember laying on the prison floor next to her. And what, do you, what, what, what do you mean by state? Like, was she soiled herself? She's laying on the floor, it's dirty, she's been beaten, yeah. she's been, what, what do you, what, um, what was her condition? She was skeletal to the point where she couldn't even lift her own bo body up. Um, I think part of it was the AIDS virus and part of it right. was malnutrition, you know, just not being given proper care. Um, her medications had been stopped. With um, the AIDS virus, it starts eating away at your brain and your organs as well. And so a lot of brain trauma and um, there's there's just a lot of your brain that ends up getting eaten away. And so people are not always lucid in their talk and their speech and what is really going on. There's a lot of, um, what is the word? Deterioration. Deterioration. Yeah. Okay. Yes, deterioration. Um, and so she was in I'm this good with three and four syllable words yeah uh what is that word um so she was chained to a prison wall in a room without mm -hmm. windows um lying in her own fecal matter i mean if i just think about having the flu or being sick or being nauseous from being car sick the idea of being restrained at all makes me even more 
sick. Right. So to be sick and miserable and then add to the being uncomfortable of just being in chains or being, you know, restricted from movement or being in right. a prison, that is that's hell. That's torture. That's that is un, that is a, a level of cruelty that is very difficult to imagine. Yeah. And um what what's the situation when it comes to like weather? Like is it hot? Is there any air conditioning in the prison? Is it humid is there mosquitoes i mean are there what other elements are adding to her yeah all of the above i mean it's hot it's humid there was no fan um no window in the area where she was being held because uh, now you're talking about no running water dehydration from sweating right. and not being able to replace those liquids and you know the the idea of now not only do you have AIDS, which breaks down your immunity system. Now you're subjected to malaria and dengue fever and right. like all of these diseases that are carried by mosquitoes and bugs and bug bites. And yeah, and I I walked into that that prison cell and the wind was taken out of my lungs. Um, there's just nothing that can prepare you for seeing any human being in that condition, especially someone that you deeply love. There's nothing that can prepare you for that. And it um, devastated me to my core. I think that moment changed my life forever. And I will never get that picture out of my head. But I think that it's an important picture that it was a little traumatizing at the beginning, but I think it's what the Lord keeps reminding me of where I'm going in my life and why I have to keep fighting for people like Sheila because I remember her in that condition. Um, and so we, we found her and we sat there for six and a half hours to try to convince people that she needed a hospital. And we eventually were able to get her um, released and we had to you know transport her to the hospital. And I remember thinking, you know, I know that God can do miracles, but I also really believed that Sheila was ready to just be home with the Lord. She was in so much misery and pain, and there was very little that she could do with her case again. She had already appealed, and there was very little movement. And so I just knew the Lord had spoken to me that it was my duty to give Sheila any amount of dignity that she could have in her final days. And I knew that it was not going to be inside of that prison. And so we transported her um, to a prison in a ambulance. She was not even strapped down. I had to hold her with all of my body weight to be able, she was in so much pain to be able to transport her. Um, we sat in an emergency room for four days before she was given a room. Um, we cleaned her teeth and cleaned her we just ha we had to clean every so part. So she was allowed to go to her. a hospital. Is this a prison hospital? Is this a private hospital? It's, public? it's a public hospital, but um, they have a contract with the prison, so they're able to be there. And long story short, it was um, a super devastating six weeks. But we spent six weeks with her, loving her, and cleaning her, and just um, praying over her. Mm. And I learned things about the Lord that I had never experienced before through those weeks that I spent with Sheila in the prison. And I really understood what Jesus' ministry was about during that time and what 
it looks like to have a real relationship with Jesus. And I remember Sheila over and over again, despite all of the corruption and injustice that she had experienced, over and over again, she praised the Lord for who he was and that she was getting justice in her final days, even though she had lost so much of her life. She really saw that God was giving her justice in her final days to be able to pass away peacefully, surrounded by people who really care and love her. Um, and obviously she wished that her children could be there, but because of resources, that wasn't able How to happen. How old are we talking about with her children? Um, at this time, uh, they're late teens and early 20s. Mm. Yeah. Um, so they've really lived a lot of their life without their mother. Mm. And, and so her memory of them is when they're like young and innocent and yeah. just torturous to think about being away from them. Right. And so, you know, it, some of the hardest moments was just having to communicate to her children about what was really going on. Um, and, and I owed that to them. I really believed. So she that. passed away. Yes. And then you decided that you would go to South Africa and meet with them. Yes. So I knew that if they were going to get any closure, it would be at least to have their mother's remains. And so um, I went through the funeral processes and cremated their mother and was able to deliver her remains and be there um, as they said their final goodbyes and their funeral in South Africa. And that was another experience that I just saw God in a whole new light um, and saw even them who had lost their mother to this injustice of trafficking, who had really, their innocence had been stolen in so many different ways. Their childhood had been stolen and they still praised God because he gave them closure and that mm -hmm. they got to hold their mom in the end. And to have that kind of faith and relationship with God was mind blowing to me. Mm -hmm. Not an easy story to share. I really thank you for sharing that with yeah. the Back to Jerusalem audience. If somebody is listening to this and thinking, wow, I really feel like I want to be a part of people that are serving those that are helping in the situation like you were with those that are being trafficked. Is there a website? Is there a ministry that you would recommend that you would point them to? Is there a resource that you could share with us, like where to go to learn more? Um, so, I mean, I think the beginning of it is there's a, a real discipleship that needs to happen. Um, it's really difficult to just jump into these type of ministries, cold turkey. Um, so I would recommend to anyone to have some discipleship training before you jump into these things. It does seem like the trendy thing to do sometimes and really easy, but I will tell you from years of experience and coming back from the mission field, I am dealing with a lot of trauma that was unforeseen um, and kind of backtracking now, having endured all that I have overseas. And so I th just can't emphasize enough having support and having discipleship training before jumping into really. Is there a ministry that you've worked together um, with that you would, you would point people to that they could support financially? that they could pray for, yeah, that why, they could learn about the situation. For sure. Um, YWAM Bali is a, was my base that I was with, and they are an amazing group of people. Um, 
Unstoppable Love International is also Un Unstoppable Love Un International, yes. just as it's spelled. Yep, Unstoppable okay. Love International. I won't spell it because I'm not a good okay. speller. <laughs> that <but>. is. <laughs> um, Unstoppable Love International is the organization that I worked with while I was in Indonesia. Com. Yes. They can look it up. They, they can, can look it up. They can Google Unstoppable, Unstoppable Love, Love International okay. Bali. Okay. You will find it. Okay. Um, and they still are working in the red light areas of. Indonesia and beyond and they are have safe houses. They have um, workforce programs for women who are coming out of trafficking fantastic people um, and they really have the discipleship down as well. They really care for the people who are ministering with them. Awesome. Yeah, so I would thank you, you so much unstoppable love international. They can Google that they'll yes. find the website yes. there. I'm assuming there's a place where they can find resources to pray, maybe send funding yes. and partner in a spiritual way. Absolutely. YWAM Bali as well. YWAM Bali. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for and having me. And I want to thank you guys for joining us for another Back to Jerusalem podcast. Again, I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of America. God bless you. <laughs>